Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Healthcare and education are the two biggest drivers of the budget in the state, and neither is without their share of controversial policy proposals. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Lane McAnelly, president of the Idaho Education Association, shares his take on the public education budget and a proposal to let school districts and public charters create their own teaching certificates to address teacher shortages. Then House Health and Welfare Committee Chairman Fred Wood and Senator Melissa Wintrow joined me to discuss Medicaid and the state's response to the COVID-19 crisis. But first, a vaccine update. Starting Monday, Idahoans ages 55 to 64 with at least one medical condition may get vaccinated. That opens up to the general population in that age category on March 22nd. Idahoans ages 45 to 54 with pre-existing conditions are eligible on March 29th, and those in that age category without medical conditions can get vaccinated starting April 5th. Now, if there are vacant vaccine appointments, some providers may open up those age groups sooner. For people younger than 44, the state hasn't yet set dates. Regardless, you can pre-register at covidvaccine.idaho.gov and a provider will contact you when you're able to get a vaccine. Earlier this week, House members debated a bill on targeted picketing. That bipartisan proposal came after a number of protests in residential areas over the last year, targeting the homes of elected officials and at least one police officer. Ultimately, most of the debate centered on what, if any, restrictions the government should put on First Amendment rights. This bill is about two things, and the primary one is protecting our law enforcement. Again, when it was just one of us, that wasn't enough to spur me to action. But number two, it's also about giving the majorities who elected each of us their proper place in policymaking. Don't betray the people who elected you in favor of those who bully you. I was six years old. A gang, the only gang at the time, and there was gangs back then. They were tough. Came before our house, 28 of them, lined up in front of my house. My dad was, worked for Boise City Police. He was the sergeant head over vice and narcotics. They lined up in front of our house. The reason they lined up in front of our house was to come and make the threat that they were going to kill our family and blow up our house. We put ourselves into this position, this job, and we make decisions that are tough. That we put ourselves in this position, and I guess I, guess I would agree with that, but I, I would do not agree with the, the notion that we put our children and our families in this position. It was brought up that this isn't necessarily for law enforcement. I take great offense to that. You want to know why? I highlighted in my opening statement, I am a spouse of a law enforcement officer. I know what it has to be to keep your head on a swivel because your husband is just simply doing his job. I know what it feels like to have to come home, close the blinds, because he simply did his job. Ultimately, that bill died 31 to 38. 
Also this week, the House debated a bill that would prevent school boards from stopping district employees with enhanced concealed carry permits from carrying guns on school property. Bill sponsor Representative Chad Christensen said his primary concern was rural schools and communities without a robust law enforcement presence, in other words, places where response time could be lengthy in an active shooter situation. Currently, school boards can choose to allow certain people to be armed on school grounds. A firearm is a tool, simple as that. And the fear of this tool is, I don't get it. It's just a tool to help our children, to save lives. The police chiefs are opposed to this. The sheriffs are opposed to this. I'm opposed to this. The schools are opposed to this. The administrators are opposed to this. The teachers are opposed to this because this bill would expose our children to needless risk with virtually no statistical likelihood of reward. Ton of risk, ton of downside. We got some pretty tough secretaries around. I'll walk around, you know, they always tell me we shot an elk last year. I got my, got my deer last weekend. Okay, those gals had a gun or a custodian or principal or one of the teachers had a gun. That completely changes the mentality of people going to go try to, to go into a school and shoot people. The problem I have with the bill is an enhanced killed, uh, concealed weapons permit only requires that you demonstrate the ability to load and fire the gun. I believe it calls for firing 90 rounds of ammunition, but there's no minimum qualification standard. Uh, there's no retraining standard in it. And our, uh, our, uh, I, I think that's vital that those kinds of things be included if we're going to put guns in schools. And therefore, I'll be voting against it, and, and you can label me what you want. But ladies and gentlemen, I am uh, awfully pro-Second Amendment. The bill passed the House 52 to 18 and heads to the Senate State Affairs Committee. Representative Cody Galloway sponsored a bill intended to incentivize K-12 schools to remain open for full-time in-person learning at least four days a week. Under House Bill 293, if a school is unable to provide that, the child's parent or guardian could withdraw their child from the school to seek an alternative education solution. The parent or guardian would be provided with a payment for those educational needs. That would come from money that otherwise would have gone to the child's school. What I wanted to point out was we also made major changes in education and how we funded schools this year. Temporary rules were established that changes the enrollment counts from ADA accounts. Many of these schools, if we had not done that, schools would have found ways to get kids back in the classroom uh, and because they would have lost funding. But because we changed the enrollment, many schools that don't have anybody in their schools right now are getting full funding as though the kids were there. Now, I'm not saying that's good. I'm not saying that's bad. Things are different. But I believe that the one thing that it needs to have is an incentive to allow the parents a choice to have their children in the classroom or virtual or whatever their choice is. And the, some of these school districts are not giving that choice. Some of us send our kids to private schools, not public schools. Maybe a lot of us. Maybe charter schools. My kid's gone to school every day. Since, since the end of last, the beginning of this year, he's been in school every day. He doesn't have to wear a mask. He doesn't have to social distance. He gets social interaction. He's having a normal education. 
Why aren't we giving this to all the kids in Idaho? That bill passed the House 55 to 15 and now heads to the Senate. Even before COVID-19 presented challenges to Idaho schools, some rural districts struggled with teacher shortages. House Republicans Ryan Kirby, Dorothy Moon, and Charlie Shepard are co-sponsoring legislation that would allow districts and public charter schools to create local teaching certificates. In other words, to create their own standards to find qualified people in their communities to fill those teaching jobs. Those employees wouldn't be able to teach in other districts and the district would have to provide ongoing training for them. That bill passed the House 54 to 13. On Friday, Lane McAnally, president of the Idaho Education Association, joined me to discuss his concerns with that bill. Thank you so much for joining me today. What are your concerns with this teacher certification proposal? You know, some of the biggest concerns that we have is that uh, anybody with a bachelor's degree will be able to walk into a school and be called a teacher. There have been uh, many years put into my trying to figure out how to teach. It's an art, it's a science. It's not just about having knowledge and standing in front of a classroom and giving those students that knowledge. You need to have the proper pedagogy. You need to know how to interact with the students. You need to know how to do those one-on-one -on -one, uh, lessons with those students. And so it's, it's really concerning that they are deprofessionalizing our profession by saying anybody can teach as long as you have a bachelor's degree. You know, as a parent, I would be outraged that they would, the legislature would be willing to let someone come into a classroom without a certification. I would want my child to be in a classroom with a highly certified educator who knows the art and the science of teaching. No, but the fact of the matter is a lot of these rural communities are facing teacher shortages. And so what's wrong with giving a local district or public charter the ability to look at these applicants to say, here are the parameters under which you can teach and, and make that decision for themselves until they can get somebody who is highly qualified in there? Is it better, in other words, to leave that position unfilled? You know, we have a, an attraction and a retention problem for educators across the state, whether it's urban or uh, rural. What we need to do is respect the education uh, educators and make them feel like professionals. And one of those ways to do that would be by providing an adequate salary. We know that teachers go into the profession uh, taking a 20.9 pay decrease compared to those people that are uh, educated comparatively. So educators, if they got that pay increase and we really respected them, we wouldn't see the problems that we're seeing across the state with uh, these unfilled positions. And once again, as a parent of a child, I think I would rather have my child be in a little bit larger of a class with a certified teacher than in a class with a non-certified person who's trying to learn how to educate children without any kind of certification or background or, or learning theology behind it. You, you, you say that as a parent, but one of the consistent concerns that we hear from teachers all around the state is class size. And so, again, if, if this is a short-term solution until we can get to a point as a state where we pay teachers more, where we bump up that career ladder a little bit more, it, should those positions just go unfilled? Doesn't that create more stress for the teachers in the rural communities? So just to clarify, I'm not a parent. I said if I were, um, and I, 
as a teacher, I know that class sizes are incredibly important. When I had 24 students in my classroom, I was able to really individualize the learning opportunities for my students compared to having 32 students in my classroom. But I also know all the years of uh, education that went into knowing how to be a proper educator. And so having someone be in a classroom with, with a person that just has a bachelor's degree is very concerning. You know, I, I'm curious, not just with this particular proposal, but with so many education issues that are in front of the legislature, a lot of it is framed as rural districts versus urban districts. And I can pick any number of bills where that's kind of the pitch behind it, that, that this is something that rural schools really, really need. But I'm curious, from your perspective, you have membership in both rural and urban districts across the state, does that oversimplify some of the issues that these districts are facing? I think it does. I do think, though, that there are uh, specific concerns for our smaller districts compared to our larger districts. But ultimately, what it comes down to is the lack of respect of educators and also the lack of funding. Our legislature has a constitutional mandate to have a thorough and uniformed public education across the state. And if we had every school in the state of Idaho be our best public school, we wouldn't see some of the issues that we have. But because too many of these districts rely on supplemental levies that are not supplemental, they actually have to have them to provide core uh, resources, then we have schools that are able to do uh, do things that other schools aren't able to do. And that's not what we need in the state of Idaho. What we need in the state of Idaho is for all of our schools to look like our best public schools. You know, since you did bring up supplemental funding, I'm curious your reaction to the public school uh, budget proposal. You know, the with the public school budget proposal, we would like to see more. We have a $600 million surplus. Our economic uh, outlook is bright right now. And the increases that we're seeing are minimal when you look at the growth that we have in the state. And um, we need to be able to fund our schools so that we have our school counselors, our school nurses, we have the ability to update our curriculum. We have school buildings that all schools, are, all of our students deserve. We need to make sure that we're funding our public school systems to the best of our ability. Um, and one of those ways to do it is really use that $600 million surplus to infuse uh, our public education system with some funds. We in the state of Idaho are way far above the recommended ratio of student to counselor uh, amounts. And we know that we have social emotional issues within our schools that our children are dealing with and our students. And so we need to be able to have those people in our schools that can help our students. All right, Blaine McAnally, Idaho Education Association. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, I appreciate it. You can watch the full House debate on House Bill 221, the teacher certification proposal on the Idaho Reports YouTube page. Saturday marks the one-year anniversary of the first recorded COVID-19 case in Idaho. Since then, the state has recorded 175,000 cases and more than 1,900 deaths. This session, much of the conversation around the pandemic has focused on the government's response to it as opposed to the pandemic itself. On Friday, I spoke with House Health and Welfare Committee Chairman Representative Fred Wood and Senator Melissa Wintrow, a member of the Senate Health and Welfare Committee, to get their take on the response from the state and public health districts. So when 
governors started ordering the shutdowns, et cetera. Um, I, I can find no fault at all with an initial reaction. Um, if there was any fault, it wasn't strong enough and it wasn't soon enough. As time went on um, and we opened up uh, and, and people began to understand what this virus was about, et cetera, and we still don't know that much about it. Um, I don't think anybody overstepped the bounds um, in terms of, of preparing us for there's something bad going on here. And you still have to remember that more than a half a million people in the United States alone have died from this virus. Uh, true, it has, a lot of people have gotten sick and not have had that much residual uh, illness from it. Um, although about 15% of the people, give or take, will wind up with long-term medical uh, problems associated with this virus. Um, and we're not actually, we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg in terms of what that uh, is. So I, I don't, I for one, in retrospect, don't think uh, that uh, anybody would have done anything differently. Um, I think that the legislature is reacting from a point of view that um, they weren't, they weren't uh, here to manage um, the crisis or help manage the crisis. And my argument has always been the following. Legislative bodies are deliberative bodies. We're supposed to take weeks to make a decision. We're not supposed to make a decision any sooner than that. But the pandemic or in ex uh, times of emergency like this, you don't have time to do that. You can't have more than one cook in the kitchen. Uh, I think the governor has done a marvelous job. Uh, I think he did has done the best that anybody could have done. And I don't think he needed the legislature to be here to tell him how to spend the money. I can't think of, of a single thing that I would have done different in terms of spending the money. I think that the, that, uh, the methodology that they used and the approach that they used was a sound approach. So, so I don't think so. I, I think that uh, the state is in good hands and has done well. You know, Senator Rintrell, I, I wanted to get your thoughts as well. Uh, you know, I'm so glad that we have a physician who's the chair of health and welfare, um, really brings the uh, medical perspective and knowledge to the to the situation. So thank you for that. I, I couldn't agree more with Chairman Wood. And um, I had the privilege of sitting on the governor's coronavirus financial advisory committee. And I saw firsthand um, how well the governor and that group really tried to respond efficiently and effectively in the crisis. And as Representative Wood said, uh, the legislative body is a deliberative group and it is structured to take the time it needs to really go through decisions before we enact laws. It is not our role or responsibility to act quickly um, in that emergency. That's why we have a governor. He has been elected statewide and we have uh, faith in that 
uh, office. Uh, I do think he operated to the constitutional and statutory authority of his office. And I, I so many times thought how I would feel being in his position. And I think he did operate out of good intention and really trying to prevent illness and death. And we heard that in his very first address. Um, I think the CFAC group that he put together, we met, I think, 26 times over the summer. I was very busy reviewing proposals and uh, doing research and really trying in a, in a short time to get resources to the places that needed it. And I do think um, he had a mixture of elected officials, uh, agency directors, business people, I mean, boots on the ground who see the everyday impacts of what's going on. So I think overall, um, I have appreciated his position. Um, as Representative Wood said, I, I, I don't know what I would have changed. I, I thought he was pretty strategic. <laughs> and he really, he was really balancing a lot under really unfortunate attacks. Um, and I think it would have behooved us and, and now too, to really think about how we can work together. Um, and, I, and the last thing I would say is again, in that deliberative process, we see it now. The governor got you know, resources out quickly. The legislature took eight weeks to get a uh, rental assistance package out. And um, we had already run out of money from the first set there in mid-January. So, that is proof in the pudding that we do not want the legislature in that role, just because it's just, you know, 105 people trying to make a decision is not an efficient way to do it. Um, so, yeah, I couldn't agree more with Representative Wood on his comments. That said, we have a lot more federal money coming into the state after President Biden signed that relief package on Thursday. So, Senator, should those 105 people have a say in the new money that will be coming to the state soon? Well, I think now that we're not in an immediate crisis where we need to act as swiftly and quickly, um, you know, I, I'm not as opposed to having a say, but I think a better model again would be to examine, uh, utilizing the data we have, examining where are the gaps and where do we foresee continued uh, issues going forward. Have, you know, the governor's office put forward a plan, and I'm sure he's going to consult with a variety of folks, uh, not just his staff, and put that before uh, the legislature. But, but it has to be done uh, pretty we can't be waiting all summer, right? There are some gaps now. And uh, so my only trepidation about the legislature weighing in is that some of the, um, uh, how do I say, um, ideological stands that are being taken are not in the best interest, I think, of Idahoans. So something I said on the Senate floor one day was that, you know, theory and practice are operating differently in our state. In theory, this could be a good thing, but I have not seen it play out well practice. And some of the debates I've seen on the House floor in particular, and some of the lines in the sand being drawn based on ideology that are really harming people. So theoretically, the legislature might be well to have a little say, but practically I have not seen us acting in the best interests of our citizens, quite frankly. 
I also asked about a $6 million supplemental appropriation for the catastrophic health care program that the House voted down earlier this month, as well as the future of the health care fund now that the state has expanded Medicaid. There isn't any doubt about the fact that the state of Idaho is going to pay its bills. Let me let me put everybody at, at rest about that. We are going to pay our bills. And I think the body politic understands upstairs that we will pay our bills. We do have to get a couple of three things ironed out. Um, one, the catastrophic health care uh, bill went down for the plain and simple reason that you have to remember that the legislature didn't want to pass Medicaid expansion. The citizens passed Medicaid expansion. And there was a lot of hype, uh, et cetera, as there always is whenever there's a drive to pass any kind of legislation, whether the legislature is going to do it or whether the citizens are going to do it. And, and there was this thought that once Medicaid expansion is passed, um, and there are basically no sideboards on it at this point in time, there's no work requirements or anything. Uh, so everybody who is eligible can sign up if they want to, um, then we thought that um, the uh, health, uh, the cost to the county industry program and the catastrophic healthcare cost program would be significantly lower than it has turned out to be. Um, then, unfortunately, uh, Millman, who is our actuary, uh, contracted actuary for the state of Idaho, who came up with an estimate of how many people would be on Medicaid once it expanded, additional uh, bodies that would be on it, and they estimated that to be 91,000. Well, they got that just about right. But what they really missed was the cost per member per month or the annual cost per member and they missed it by double, okay? Now that is missing something really a long ways. So that has significantly elevated the cost for the future of this program. And the legislature, rightly so, is markedly concerned about that. So we've got to get that sorted out. Now, the way we're going to do that is that uh, I, Health and Welfare Committee in the House introduced a piece of legislation on Monday, or on Tuesday, and we heard it yesterday and sent it up to the floor, whereby what we're going to do is we're going to put the um, public health districts, at this point in time, the state of Idaho funds about 15% of the public health districts. And so we're going to no longer fund that, and that fund is, I mean, that is now going to be funded by the counties. And one of the things that we're going to do in that piece of legislation is to um, decrease the eligibility for the county industry program and the catastrophic health care cost program to make sure that anybody who is eligible for Medicaid will no longer be eligible for those two programs. Anybody who is eligible to go to the state exchange to purchase subsidized health care and certain voluntary commitments will no longer be eligible for the county agency program, the catastrophic health care cost program. Um, 
I just spoke with the director of health and welfare this morning. I have a weekly meeting with him. We can extend out to June the 30th um, and open that enrollment period from the 31st of March to the end of June. You can watch my full conversation with Chairman Wood and Senator Wintrow on the Idaho Reports YouTube channel. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.